So just before we get going today, just to let you know, part of the outward bit of my job, I lead something called the Unreached Network, uh, which works across our international family of churches that we're a part of, New Frontiers, uh, churches around the world, and particularly uh, working into the kind of cross-cultural mission space. And um, every year we do a conference online, and this year it's going to be 9th and 10th of June. And the focus, as well as just hearing from different stories from around the world, in terms of what God's doing in different countries, uh, from different brothers and sisters in different places. The focus this year will be on the peacemaking imperative and the fact that as part of our call as Christians, we're called to bring peace wherever we go and to reconcile people to each other as well as reconciling them to God. So just to kind of flash that up there, uh, more details online, but I always like, as well as kind of inviting all people from my connections out there, it's always nice to have RFC people in the room as well, the virtual room. So if you want to have a look at that, then you'd be most welcome to join us. We are starting a new series today over the next few Sundays, looking at the Apostles' Creed. So we'll just throw the creed up on the screen uh, so you can uh, be familiar with it. And depending on what background you've come from, you may well be aware of the idea that Christians all over the world would say this creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator in heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And so it goes on. And we're going to spend the next few weeks just focusing on this creed, trying to understand it, trying to get it into our brains and into our hearts. And um, why is it important that we spend a few weeks looking at the Apostles' Creed? Well, one way of thinking about it is like a map. So some maps are super complicated, like this one, the Ordnance Survey maps. They've got so much detail on them. You sit and you look and you think, man, I thought it was supposed to help me get from A to B. I, haven't, I don't even know where A and B are, right? What does the blue W mean? That blue guy that's doing this, in a, what does that mean, right? And so sometimes people might draw you a really simple map and go, look, go up to the W, turn right, go to the museum, turn left, and you'll get there, right? And so there are different kinds of maps. And in the same way, the Bible is like the first map. It's got a million words. It's a complicated, sometimes we're asking a simple question and the Bible gives us a complicated answer, right? And so sometimes it can be hard to navigate through the Bible. What the creed is, is it's, it's taken the really important things about Christianity, and it said, go here, turn right, go there, turn left. And so Christians around the world and through the ages have used the creed as a map to help them through life. And um, just a few things by way of introduction to why the Apostles' Creed is important, what we think about it. Firstly, the creed is ancient. So probably written in the second century, end of the second century in Rome. Um, so it's been around for a long time as a distillation of all of the scriptures and what Christians believe. It's one of the earliest summaries of the Christian faith that we've still got with us today. Some people thought that the 12 kind of statements were written by the 12 different apostles um, which is why it was called the Apostles' Creed. That's probably not true because by then they'd all been scattered all over the world because all the apostles kind of went and told the whole world about Jesus. Um, what's important is some people have died for these truths. These aren't luxury truths. There are people who took their stand and were told, recant. And they were like, no, I'm not going to recant. And they spouted the Apostles' Creed and they lost their life. So this, this, is, this is stuff that has mattered deeply to Christians. And 
it probably, in its earliest phase, it was used to kind of help prepare people for baptism. So if, if you're a new Christian and we're going to baptize you, what are we baptizing you on? Well, often it was on the statement of these things. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus who died and rose again. I believe in the Holy Spirit, you know. And, and it was, so probably it was kind of a practical, crunchy thing to help people prepare for what they were going to be baptized into. But also the creed is a narrative. So just like the Bible is a big story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it goes somewhere. The Bible takes you from somewhere to somewhere. So with the creed, actually, it's kind of, it's in order. It doesn't start with the, the, the death of Jesus or the second coming. It starts with creation. And so the creed, like the Bible, takes us on a journey. And for us, what's going to be quite exciting, at least these kind of things excite me, probably not you, um, is that we're, we're starting today. It's two weeks till Easter. We're going to go to Easter. On Easter Sunday, we're going to do the line of the creed that says, on the third day he rose again. And then after Easter, as we come towards Pentecost, we're going to be talking about, and I believe in the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins and the church. And so we're going to follow the story through the Christian calendar over the next few weeks. I think that's quite exciting. You're thinking, I like chocolate at Easter. Also, the creed is Trinitarian. So one of the things we'll see about the shape of the creed is it's I believe in the Father, a section, and then I believe in the Son, a section, and then I believe in the Holy Spirit, and a section. And so the way that it's shaped, as well as being narrative, is also Trinitarian, because as Christians, one of the things that really matters to us is that God is one, but that he's revealed in three persons, revealed as Father, revealed as Son, and revealed as Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that as we go through. And then finally, the creed is universally recognized. So, and this is pretty cool. All major denominations, all churches around the world, wherever you go and through history, have held to the Apostles' Creed. So you could go to the Maronite church in Lebanon. You could go to the Coptic church in Ethiopia, one of the oldest churches on the planet, been going for a couple thousand years. Um, you could go to the Catholic church, to the Orthodox church, to the Armenian church. You could go to Roman Catholics, to Protestants, even our kind of churches. All churches all over the world hold to the Apostles' Creed. It's like the irreducible minimum. We disagree on other things. But this is the irreducible minimum of Christian faith. And I think that's really quite a powerful thing. And in a room like this, if you look around us, we've got people that have joined from different kinds of backgrounds, different kinds of families, different places on earth. We've got really rich people in the room and really poor people in the room. We've got a whole mixture of people brought together. What is it that brings us together? It's this shared belief in God as Father in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, in the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the family that God is making, and the fact he's coming again. That unites us. It centers us on him. And so this actually has a, I would say, a spiritual power to unite, to bring different people together around the truth that is Jesus Christ. Amen? Um, I want to read some scripture, and then we're going to get into the creed, and we're just going to start going kind of word by word. Uh, we're just going to read from Mark chapter 12 and verse 28, a few verses. Every week, as well as talking about the creed, we want to read some Bible. 
because we believe that the Bible is the word of God that's got life and power for us and grace for us. And so we're going to read now Mark chapter 12, verse 28, just a few verses. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So someone comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, of the whole Bible, of the million words, which commandment is the most important? And Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So just a couple of things from this passage of Scripture. The first is this. Some teachings of Scripture are more important than others. (gasps) Can you really say that? Surely it's all the Word of God, and every verse is important. Of course it is. But here, someone asked Jesus, which is the most important bit of the Bible? And Jesus answers, the most important bit of the Bible is this bit. And so, according to Jesus, he pulls this bit out and goes, this is the most important bit. This is the bit you really need to know. And it's actually important to reflect on that. Because we can think a little bit like the game Jenga. So, you might be familiar with the game Jenga. In the game, some blocks... You can take them out, and the tower stays standing, right? And you go, I've I've taken a block out, but the tower's still standing. But with other blocks, you take it out, and the whole thing comes crashing down. And you're like, oh, that block was fundamental to the whole structure. Now, it's actually the same with Christian doctrine. There are some things that if you take them out... You do lose something, but you don't lose what it is to be a Christian. So there are some doctrines, it's not take it or leave it, they're precious and they're in the Bible, but they're not part of the fundamental structure of being a Christian. But other things, if you take them out, the whole of Christianity goes. So for example, if you say, I don't believe that there's one God, but I'm still a Christian. It's like, no, you're not. If you take out, I don't believe, you know, there's one God, the whole of Christianity is gone. You might say, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Sorry, you're something, you're spiritual, but you're not a Christian. Because fundamental to Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead. If you take that out, what you've got is not Christianity. Okay, does that make sense? But there are other things that we disagree with dear brothers and sisters on. They're precious to us, they're important, but other churches could do things slightly differently and they're still Christian, right? It's important to think like that as well. So in our church, we don't baptize babies. In our church, we believe that baptism is for those who have faith in Jesus and a baby can't have faith because it can't really have anything except hunger and screaming, (laughs) right? But when, when someone gets to the point where they can make a decision and have faith, then we baptize you on your faith. Now, other churches baptize babies. So although this is a precious thing for us, and this is how we do church and how we read the Bible, another church could do it differently 
They're still Christian, right? It hasn't made the whole tower fall over. You're Christian, we're Christian. We just disagree on this little thing. Also, in our church, it's really important to us that we welcome the Holy Spirit, that people can speak in tongues, that people could come up like we had this morning and prophesy and we feel God talks to people through the gifts of the Spirit. That matters to us. It's important. We, it's not just an add-on. It's a really sweet part of what we believe it is to be church. We're charismatic. Now, other churches that aren't charismatic, that don't believe in that stuff, they're still Christian, right? We don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Does that make sense? And so there are some blocks that you take them out and what you lose is the block. There are other things you take them out and you lose what's fundamental to Christianity. And the creed is the things that are fundamental to Christianity all over the world, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or us, okay? The second thing we see just from this little scripture, Mark chapter 12, is that summary statements can be helpful. So Jesus takes two texts to answer the question, one from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus. And so he brings a couple of texts together. He makes a summary statement. This is the most important thing. And the creed works the same way. In the creed, it's not scripture, but it's been written by referring to lots of scripture. It's saturated in scripture the way baklava is saturated in honey, hallelujah. And um, <laughs> eh. it's getting to the time when I'm starting to think about baklava. It's... And so you've got, you've got scriptures from different places that have built this creed. And so as we do it, we're going to show you in the Bible, this is where this comes from. Um, so summary statements can be helpful. And so we see this. And so what we're going to do now, I've done a kind of introduction to the creed. Hope you liked it. And now we're going to just focus on the first line of the creed. And we're going to go just kind of word by word. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That's what, I believe that. How about you? Right? That's what we're going to look at now. And throughout this series, that's how we're going to go. And the first word is I. And we're literally going word by word, right? I, I believe. And it's interesting, actually, the creed is read corporately, recited corporately in churches around the world. Uh, we do it together. But it doesn't say we believe, it says I believe. Now, why is that? Well, it's because it's, it's one thing for you to say, oh, this is what Christians believe, or this is what the church believes. It's something else for you to say, actually, this is what I believe. This is something that I've made my personal belief. It comes out of my heart. And so, and it's probably, it came from individual baptism preparation. And the whole point of the baptism journey is to stand up in front of people and say, I believe this. I'm leaving my old life behind. I'm, I'm going all in on this truth now. I'm here. This is, this is what I believe. How about you? And, and it's... It's I and then believe. And it's interesting. The word believe here lets us down a little bit in English because belief in English is generally quite intellectual. You know, I believe in the existence of God. And what the creed is, is asking of us is a little bit more than that. Okay, believe here. It's got a bit more heart in it, a bit more commitment to it. It's not just I believe in the existence of God. It's this is my creed. 
So the, the word creed comes from Latin credo, which is I believe, the first words of the creed in Latin. And it's mu that's much more this is my identity. All my eggs are in this basket. You know, they always tell us, don't bet the farm. I don't know about you, I've bet, I don't have a farm, but I've bet everything I have, which isn't very much, on this truth. If I was a poker player, I'm all in on this truth. My whole lot, if this turns out not to be true, I've got nothing left. I'm all in. I believe it. So there's a, there's a trust in it. I believe in Boris Johnson, but I don't trust him. Right? I know he exists, but don't ask me to build my life on the guy. Okay? And that's, that's what it's saying here. I believe in God the Father. In fact, James tells us this. Ah, there's a little bit of sarcasm in the Bible, right? Ah, you believe that God is, is one. Well done. Even the demons believe that and shudder. It's not enough just to go, yeah, I believe there's one God. Okay, even the demons believe there's one God. But how in are you? So that's I believe. And then it says this, in God, the Father Almighty. So the creed begins with the oneness of God. You know, the Bible begins in the beginning, God. And the creed begins there. Just like Jesus said, they asked Jesus, what's the most important thing? He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's foundational, fundamental to our faith. That's where you start. Now, it doesn't say, I believe in God, full stop. It has to explain a little bit about the understanding that this is a Christian God, the Father Almighty. Why is that? Because all over the world, all the way through history, and it's very true in our culture today, people can say, eh, I believe in God. But when you drill into it, the God they're talking about is very different from the Christian God. The word God can be like the blank square in the game Scrabble, which it doesn't have a letter on it, but you could, depending on where you put it, you can make it mean whatever you want. And sometimes the word God, oh, I believe in God, I'm spiritual, yeah, but let's just drill into it. There's a certain God that we're talking about here. Do you believe in him? So it's, I believe in God, comma, the Father Almighty, right? And um, the Christian view of God, and we're going to see this over the weeks to come, is this. We believe in one God, not three. So we don't go... On Monday, I'm worshipping the Father. On Tuesday, I'm kneeling before the Son. And on Wednesday, I'm praying to the Holy Spirit. We don't do that. We're not talking about three different gods. We're talking about one God revealed to us in Scripture in three persons. God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit. So the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father, but the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Clear as wonderful, glorious, I was going to say mud. Hallelujah. Honey, baklava. The baklava is made of many layers, but it's one baklava. Ah, right. And God is one. And so it says, I believe in God, the Father. And Father is a fundamental and wonderful word about God that we see throughout Scripture. But 
where it starts, and remember, this is narrative. This is going somewhere. Before we get to the creator, before we talk about creation, we're talking about God as father. God is father before creation because he was eternally father to the eternal son. God is loving the son in eternity with a strong bond of relationship and love even before creation happens. And so we read Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we talk about Father, fundamentally and initially, we're talking about the Father's relationship of love to the Son. And that's going to be important for us in a moment. Then, through creation, God is Father to all people. So we read that Adam was the Son of God. Because God initiated him, God brought him to birth, and through Adam, all people came. And that means that anyone, anywhere in the world, is your brother or your sister. Did you know that? So, Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. You are the clay. Uh, We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Ephesians 4. We believe in one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so you can see any bloke on the planet, and you can say, ah, my brother from another mother. You can see any lady on the planet, and you can say to her, ah, you're a sis to me from another history. And though it's a mystery... Yet it means this to me. It is bliss to me. Come on, give another holy kiss to me. I don't know how she'll respond, but you could try it. <laughs> but it's the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the whole human race under one father. The Bible's very clear. Amen? And then, for those who believe in Christ, God especially becomes father to us through faith in Jesus. And so we read in Ephesians 1, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And so there's, a, there's an adoption that happens when you come to know Christ, where you're brought into an intimate relationship with God as Father. And what happens here, and this is important, right, is that it's not that God just forms a new bond with you. Ah, you're my child, Ah, you're my child. It's that we are brought into the eternally pre-existent bond of love between father and son because we're brought into Christ. And so it's not that suddenly you've got a relationship with your father that depends on your faith or your behavior or your feelings or whether you're having a good day or a bad day or whether you read your Bible or not. Your relationship with your father is this eternally strong, pre-existent bond of love between father and son before there was anything imperturbable, unshakable, unchangeable. And we're put into that. It's like if we're hanging off a cliff and holding on to God, sometimes we think that's the picture of salvation. But actually, you've got God holding on to Jesus with an eternal grip, and we're put into Christ. And that's our salvation. And so God becomes especially father to the believers through faith in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. Also, father, not mother. Right? It doesn't say, I believe in God, one mother almighty. It says father. 
Why does that matter? Well, let's just take this a little bit carefully. God is not gendered. God is not male or female. God is above gender. In fact, right at the beginning of the Bible, both male and female are created in the image of God. So men are in the image of God and so are women. Okay, and so we read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, the consistent pronouns that are attributed to God throughout Scripture are male, he and him, and father, not mother. But there are moments in Scripture, little glimpses, when actually the the grammar, the metaphor that God is revealed is, is feminine and is mother. There's a, there's a few moments in Scripture that we have to note. Deuteronomy 32, 18. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. And that's feminine grammar. Isaiah 66, 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. That's a simile. Like a mother comforts, so God comforts. And Luke 13, 34, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And here, Jesus compares himself to a chicken, to a hen. And he says, just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, so I wanted to gather you. So there are moments in Scripture, and I think it's actually really special, that God is revealed in mother-like language, but the vast majority of language about God in Scripture, and Father is a big word in the Bible, is that God's revealed as Father. Okay, the consistent pronouns given to God in Scripture are he and him. So if we throw, just start the next slide. So we agree with Chine MacDonald who wrote a book that said God is not a white man. Okay, we agree with that because God's not white because he's above race and he's not a man because he's above gender. Okay, but we don't agree with Ariana Grande, as lovely as the song is, that God is a woman. That's too far and the Bible doesn't say that. Is that okay? Does that make sense? Okay. And then also on the fatherhood of God, perfect fatherhood without the shortcomings of human fathers. Father might be a triggering word to you as part of your story. Father might not be a great word for you. Um, What we need to know, and the Bible is very clear about this, the fatherhood of God is so much more wonderful than the fatherhood of humans. And so James 1 and 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. As a human father, I have a lot of variation and a lot of shadow. But in God, there's none. If God was weather, he would be the Mediterranean. Hallelujah. Predictable, reliable. People in the Mediterranean aren't Googling, oh, I wonder what the weather's going to be today. Ah, sunshine again. Yeah, they don't even notice. And God is like that. There's no shadow. There's no question. What's his mood going to be today? What's his love going to be today? No. He's there. He's Father, always. Okay? I know it's hard for English people to understand that there might be places like that, but there are. I believe in God, the Father 
almighty. And almighty means he can do anything. He is able to do anything. Humans are mighty, actually. Some of our technology, powerful. But God is almighty. And this fuels our prayer. Because when we pray, we're coming to a Father who loves us, almighty, who can do anything. Oh, let's go. Let's pray, right? And the Heidelberg Catechism, which is an ancient uh, kind of set of questions and responses to the creed. When it's asked the question... Uh, what does it mean to you that God is Father Almighty? This answer was given. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God and willing to do so as a faithful father. Amen? He's able to do it because he's almighty. He's willing to do it because he's father. And so our creed goes, I believe in God, father almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And this is our final piece for today. Creator of heaven and earth sounds a lot like the beginning of the Bible, where we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, heaven and earth. And what this does, it immediately decenters us from the story. We're really good at thinking we're the most important people in the story or in the room or in the Bible. And what this immediately does is it says, ah, ah, ah. we're talking about God who's the creator of everything. And yeah, humans, but humans, eh, day six. <laughs> we got to Friday before we had humans. Humans were made on a Friday. You know that's why we love Fridays so much, right? It's our day. Okay. Um, and that's why Jesus was crucified on a Friday. Was, he was representing humanity. Um, so this immediately decenters us from the story, and it should give us an ecological humility that there's a great web of creation and that we're a part of it, and we've got to play our part and be stewards and tread lightly because it belongs to him. And Psalm 24 tells us that. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, because he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Because he made it, it belongs to him. It's his by right of invention. He got the pattern, right? He created it. Now, there's an aspect of mystery here. Because it says he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. So what is seen and what is unseen. The the physical world and also the unseen spiritual world. And this is important because it does include invisible things, spiritual things. And and this matters if we live in quite a materialistic culture where we think, oh, what I can see is real and other stuff, not so much. But the Bible speaks to us, and many cultures outside of the UK speak to us of a very real spiritual world of angels and demons and powers and principalities. And in fact, what I'm doing today and what we'll be doing with this creed is, yes, I'm speaking to you guys in the room, to your brains, to your hearts and communicating information. But more than that, I'm declaring with spiritual authority 
truth to any demons that are lurking around here. Or uh, it's like a, a, a fire hose that I'm blasting across you guys and any barnacles or thoughts or ideas that have clung to us from the spiritual realm that aren't ours are being blown off us now in the name of Jesus. So declaration is actually an act of spiritual warfare also. You know, if a boat has been out at sea for a few years, it collects lots of barnacles and growth on its hull and every so often they have to take it out and they have to scrape everything off the bottom. And, and us living in this world, we attract gunk and we need occasion to be blasted with truth. And some of you are looking at me like, what is this guy talking about? And others are going, amen, right? <laughs> Depending on where you came from. But the Bible is very clear. God created everything in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, material and spiritual, and it's all part of his creation. Now, what this doesn't mean, okay, is that you have to believe in a literal seven-day creation. Christians across the world hold very different views on how to read Genesis 1 in terms of how God created the world. What is emphasized here and what is fundamental for Christian faith is the who of creation. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Whether he did it with seven literal days or seven periods, whether that chapter is literal or metaphorical, whether we believe in an old earth or a young earth, whether you have microevolution in your system or not, actually, there's a vast range of Christian thought on that and in this room. And we're okay with that. We're not talking about how God created the world. The fundamental thing, the, the piece that if you took it out, the whole structure would fall over, is that God created the heavens and the earth. That he created it by his mighty word. He spoke and things came into being. That's the unifying doctrine across the world. And creation too was subjected to the curse. When pain came into the world, it also came into our ecology. Right? We read in Romans 8, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we see the pain that creation is in across the world, right? Earthquakes, floods, pain, mess. And the redemption purchased by Christ, again, isn't just for humans. It's a cosmic, global redemption. The Bible's very clear. For in him, Colossians 1, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. So through the cross, there's hope, there's redemption for everything. It's God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And we're going to see this as we go, because otherwise salvation is we just get rescued out of the world and go to heaven. And that's not actually what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches salvation is the Lord is going to recreate the heavens and the earth, a home of righteousness, and we're going to live on a renewed earth with our renewed bodies. So it's not about rescue, it's about transformation, amen? And so just within that, within the climate emergency within which we're living, there is a note here that everything belongs to God 
There's a call to stewardship, to ecological humility. There are implications for us. I just want to read this to finish. This is Chris Wright uh, speaking about the fact that God made everything, that everything, every space we're in belongs to him. And we'll close with this. Jesus is Lord of the workplace and the family. He's Lord of the streets and the skies. Lord of schools and slums. Lord of hospitals and housing. Lord of governments, business, academia, sport and culture. He's Lord of all time and all space. Lord of heaven and earth. There is no place on earth where our lives can be lived or our work can be done outside the governing authority of the Lord Jesus. Amen? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. How about you?